0: Well, I'm going to do something here right at the beginning, which is just to read through the passage we're going to be in in 1 Timothy, and we're not going to put it up on the screens or anything, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, or turn them on, or whatever you want to do, and go to 1 Timothy, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, and he says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God, and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen, Paul says, as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. Well, the pandemic has changed the way we work in so many ways, hasn't it? I mean, a year and a half ago, I had a home office, but I barely used it. In fact, we were talking about renovating and turning it into something else just because I I was rarely there and just didn't need it that much. I was always out meeting with people or here at church or, you know, working in some coffee shop somewhere. And then all of that changed when the pandemic hit and we were forced to stay home and suddenly I was there all the time. And I know for many of you, that was a a challenge as well. Like one of you is always working or both of you are working if you're married or whatever the situation is, or if you're single, all of a sudden you just find yourself stuck at home. And for those of us with small kids, it was especially challenging because I'm supposed to be working a good chunk of the day, but the kids don't understand that. So they're running around, making noise, They've, you know, they've got all the stuff that they do. I'm in my home office and there's a door that I would try to shut, um, but you know, they're out there screaming and yelling and banging on the door and every now and then when they wouldn't get my attention, they would go draw me a picture and then slide it under the office door and go, Dad, did you see it? Did you see it, Dad? Did you get the picture, Dad? What did you think of the picture, Dad? Did you see the picture, Dad? And it was everything I could do to just sit there and do my Zoom meeting or whatever it was and not pay attention to what was happening outside that door because they wanted to get my attention and I knew that if I gave them too much of it at the wrong time, it would only encourage them. It would happen over and over again. So what do we do? Well, my wife would come and try to get them away and teach them not to do that and I would kind of ignore them for a certain period of time and eventually they kind of got the message. When dad's door is shut, he's not available. Right now, The kids are pretty respectful now, honestly. uh, But when the older two come home from school, the first thing they do often is run up the stairs, dart around the corner, and look to see, is the door open or closed? Because if the door is closed, that means dad is not available right now. And if you need him, you don't get his attention by pounding on the door, by slipping something under there, by yelling or screaming or anything like that. The only way to get dad's attention is to go to mom and say, Hey, mom, I've got this problem. Can you message dad for me? And then if it's urgent, you know, maybe it's worth me looking into, like they can't, you know, get something working on the TV or something, important emergency things. But if the door is open, then there's no limitation on them coming in. That's the rule. If the door is open, that means they can waltz on, and even if I'm working on something, I'm available. They can ask questions. They can hang out for a while if they want to. They can watch me do some of my work if they want to, because I don't have to be like super focused then. I'm not in a meeting then. There's, it's, it's okay for them to approach and be a part of that space. I share all of this because our Heavenly Father did something very similar in the Old Testament. See so that door on my home office is, is a barrier, it's sort of symbolic of whether or not they can just waltz right in or whether they have to go through someone else to get to me. And God did this in the Old Testament, first with something called the tabernacle and then with its replacement called the temple. The people were sinful, they were, they were separated from God and God, he was holy, he was perfect, he was set apart and so he created this special place where he could communicate with the people and hear them through a priest and communicate back to them, but not be right necessarily with them. There was a barrier there where they couldn't just waltz on in to talk to him because the door was closed. We first see this in Exodus chapter 26. In Exodus 26, we get the instructions for the tabernacle. The tabernacle uh, is in the Hebrew, the mishkan, it's a dwelling place. It was God's dwelling place among the people, God's house. And here's what we see in Exodus chapter 26, verse 31. For the inside of the tabernacle, make a special curtain of finely woven linen. Decorate it with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and with skillfully embroidered cherubim. Those are angels, types of angels. In uh, verse 32, it says, hang this curtain on gold hooks attached to four posts of acacia wood. Overlay the posts with gold and set them in four silver bases. So you have these elaborate kind of curtain stands there made of wood covered in gold and a silver base. Hang the inner curtain from clasps and put the Ark of the Covenant in the room behind it. This curtain will separate The holy place inside the tabernacle from the most holy place the holy of holies deep inside the tabernacle see when adam and eve sinned sin created a barrier between god and people and that barrier was represented in the tabernacle by this curtain you can see here a picture of the tabernacle what it might have looked like with the curtain sort of half cut away so you can see what's in the most holy place That curtain was there to be a barrier to represent the separateness between God and people because God was special and people could not simply run in and approach him whenever they wanted. They had to go through a priest and even that priest couldn't go through that curtain necessarily. There was one time a year where the high priest could go through there. That priest was a mediator representing the people to God. The priest would perform sacrifices on behalf of the people. They would bring their sacrifice to the priest, and he would sacrifice for them and represent them before God as their mediator. The whole system was designed to communicate that there was a barrier between people and God. Later on, that tabernacle would be replaced by the temple. This is the second temple, the one that was renovated by King Herod. It was a permanent version of the tabernacle, and you can see there the curtain that represented the barrier between God and people, a physical and visual reminder that while God cared about his people and he wanted to communicate with them, wanted them to be his followers, there was still this separation that was there between him and the people. If you have kids, there is a phenomenal book called the Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross, which represents this really, really well and explains it in ways kids can understand. And I love this. You can see on the picture there uh, that it calls this the keep out curtain. It was the keep out curtain. And, And there's a phrase that they use over and over that says, because of your sin, you can't come in. And that's what the curtain was, a barrier between people and God, between us and God. But then Jesus came. Jesus came, the Bible says, at just the right time, Paul says. He lived a perfect life. He started this movement that would go on for thousands of years, and he had an incredible ministry. And then to everyone's astonishment, he allowed himself to be arrested and hung on a cross and crucified, murdered. He didn't even put up a fight. He didn't even let his his followers put up a fight. He could have defended himself. He could have said no, but Instead, he allowed it to happen. And he said at one point in Matthew 26, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Jesus had a purpose. He knew what he was there to do. He wanted to accomplish it. No one understood it back then, but a symbol of what he was doing was about to be seen and very visible inside the temple. Jesus would die on the cross, but it wasn't the cross that killed him. Jesus actually gave up his life on his own. The Bible says in Matthew 27, then Jesus shouted again and he released his spirit. He died on his own, but it's what happened after this in the very next verse that's so amazing. It says, at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain was 30 feet You can see, I think, a person standing there to give you a sense of how high this was. This was a massive building, a massive curtain. This curtain was woven of many pieces of fabric to be four inches thick. I have never seen a curtain that big. But I am certain that if I walked up to it and tried with all my might to just get a little rip in that four-inch thick curtain, I couldn't do it. I don't think any human could have caused even a little tear in this, and yet the Bible says that when Jesus gave up his spirit, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, 30 feet down, not from bottom to top, not like humans hooked up something to it and ripped it apart, from the top to the bottom, indicating that God was doing this himself, breaking the barrier between God and people. Do you understand the significance of that moment? It's hard for us to understand, isn't it? Because we didn't live in that system. We didn't live having to take animals to a priest. We didn't live thinking that God was behind the curtain, this thing that we would never really get to see in our lifetime, that there was this separateness between us and God, this obstacle. But because sin was the obstacle that barrier represented when Jesus Christ died on the cross and removed the barrier of sin, there was no need for the curtain anymore. There was no need for the temple system anymore. The barrier was gone, and now we didn't need to go through a priest as our mediator before God. Because the way was just opened up. Hebrews chapter 10 says, When sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. Do you remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, when he said, I will will give you a, a well of living water inside of you a spring inside of you of living water for purification. And the idea was that no longer will it be the outward things you do that are supposed to somehow make you right with God, but it's going to be from the inside out. God is going to purify you from the inside out. That's that living water, that pure water. It's not done with temple sacrifices or rituals. It's not having to go through a priest as the mediator between God and people. We can boldly enter into the Holy of Holies directly ourselves because we don't need to go through a priest. We don't need to go through anyone else because Jesus is our high priest and he tore down the barrier for us. If you've followed, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have access to God that was simply unimaginable before Christ now the barrier is gone, and in its place is a, a bridge with a sign over it that says, "Come, anyone who is thirsty, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. It is just openness. The, the office door is open. Run on in and see your heavenly Father." So what does any of this have to do with First Timothy? Paul is writing to this young man, Timothy, in his 30s, who is is a Jewish man. His, His grandmother and his mother were Jewish, his father was Greek. But his grandmother and mother taught him Jewish history, and they taught him about Jewish faith. And so Timothy was very familiar with this history. He knew about the significance of the barrier and the Old Testament Mosaic law and all of those things. He understood this very well, going through a priest to be the mediator between God and people, and then recognizing that now you can go directly to God because of what Jesus did. So Timothy understood what a big deal it was when Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man, Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. Notice the verse starts with the word for. For. Paul is using this as the foundation for something. There's something he is supporting with this statement. So let's go back and see what is he saying that this is meant to be the foundation for. If you look back at verse one, he says, I urge you, urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness Dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Paul says, I I urge you, I beg of you, I want you to pray for everybody and pray that God would help them and pray for specific needs that they have and thank God for them. And and if I'm reading this, I'm thinking, yeah, I can pray for my other Christians, absolutely. I pray for, for people in my small group. I pray for people at church. I pray for other people here, absolutely. And Paul says, no, no, no. I want you to pray for everyone, all people. All people? There's some, not some nice people out there. Yeah, everyone, even political leaders, even civil authorities, any authority. Even if you don't like them, I want you to pray for them. And he says, this can lead to peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. It pleases God. After all, he wants everyone to be saved and know the truth. So why should we do this, Paul? And he says, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. He gave his life. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. See, here's the thing. God did this amazing thing for you where Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross and he took sin upon him that should have been yours to pay for and he paid for it and when he paid for it, as Hebrews says, there was no need for that barrier anymore and so that barrier just ripped in two and now you have this access to God, you can have a relationship with him and I, I hope that you do, that you've trusted in Jesus. But it wasn't just for you. God wants many more people to be a part of his kingdom, many more people to be a part of his family and so he says, pray for them. It's amazing to meditate on what God did for us. And we should thank him and praise him for that, but it shouldn't stop there. We should also be praying for other people that they would experience the same freedom and healing and access that we have to God through Jesus Christ. E.M. Bounds was a prolific author on prayer. And he said, it's more important to talk to God about men than to talk to men about God. I think if you've been a Christian very long, you understand that we're ambassadors for Christ and we are supposed to, to let people know about the faith that we have and always be ready to share an answer for the hope that is in us and be ready to communicate in words, not just actions, about what we believe about Jesus Christ. But there's something to this. It shouldn't just be telling people what we believe, but it should also be praying for them. So let's just pause here and be brutally honest for a moment. Some people are very hard to pray for. That guy that insulted you. That woman that did something to hurt you. And of course, what Uncle Frank did at the family gathering, unforgivable. We all have these people. I apologize if your name is Frank. We all have these people in our lives who are hard to pray for. And yet that is Paul's charge, to pray for everyone. How do you pray for somebody that you don't particularly care for? God, thank you that somehow they are made in your image, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Like, how do you do do that? Lord, I I pray for him that you would give him early admission to your heavenly kingdom, Lord. Just... (laughs) I don't think that's what Paul has in mind. Paul uses four different Greek words for prayer, four different distinct words. And if we were to take these words, they're requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Four different types of prayer. When I pray for other people, when I pray for lost people in particular, honestly, my prayers look way too shallow compared to what Paul has in mind here. He has four different aspects of prayer. It's like he's repeating this over and over again. I don't want you just to pray a quick little short prayer. I want you to make requests, have prayers, have intercessions, have thanksgivings. Like, really pray for them. What if we took this as a guide? What would that mean? What would we do to pray if we were to follow this this four-set prayer that Paul puts before us? The first thing he mentions is requests, or some versions will say supplications. It's requests. Here's a question to ask. What do we know about their needs? There's this person I'm thinking of and they're hard to pray for, but I actually, I do know there's something going on in their life right now and what do I know about their needs that I can pray for them? The next thing Paul mentions is prayers. This is a generic word for prayer, it's it's a catch-all. It's all kinds of prayer things. It's like if I didn't cover it with the other three items, this is the sort of what's left. You would think actually that Paul would put this first, but for whatever reason, he put requests first and he put prayers second. So what are some things we should be praying for everyone? Maybe some things that don't fall into the other three categories. And then he says intercessions, intercede on their behalf. How can we present this, represent this person before God and go to God on their behalf, even with all their faults, all their flaws, everything that we don't like about them? How can I take a posture of, Lord, I wanna represent this person to you and bring them to your attention? And, and, and I would love to see you work in their life in a special way despite everything I think about them. I wanna intercede on their behalf. And the last one is maybe the hardest one. What can we thank God for about this person? There's always something. There are always things that we can thank God for about people even if we don't particularly care for them. So Paul says, I want you to pray for everyone. And here are these four things But I want you to be sure you're praying for everyone. And then he says something really amazing, something that would have been very out of place at this time in the Roman Empire. Something with the people, they're familiar with tyrant kings and God complex emperors. And Paul says, Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority. Pray for these civil leaders, these political leaders, these military leaders. Pray for these people who are in authority. People at work, people at school, wherever you have authorities in your life, pray for all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. I gotta be honest with you, when a politician does something I don't like, my first response is not usually, let me pray for them. Maybe it's yours. I feel like our first response is often, let me go talk about this with other people who agree with me. (laughs) Let's go whine and complain. Let's go listen to people online who are whining and complaining about the same thing that I would like to whine and complain about. And I'm not saying there's no place for outrage or being informed. John the Baptist was outraged at King Herod of Antipas for what he was doing. But do we ever stop and pray for these people that we maybe don't like? What about the authorities at your job, your boss, your supervisor, your CEO, your school, your HRA, your church? Are there managers, pastors, ministry leaders, principals, teachers, people that are in some kind of authority over you that you don't like for some reason? Are you taking the time to pray for them? And I know you may be thinking to yourself, how can I pray for them? Every time I think about them, I just get angry. And I get that. And I did have someone after the first service be like, this is gonna be hard. I don't know if I can do this, Adam. Adam. I get it. Let me give you some examples, some things that you could pray for people when you're having a hard time. God, help them to have discernment, to make wise choices. And protect them from bad advisors who want to steer them in the wrong direction. No matter how good or bad a leader you are, there are always people in the wings trying to influence and and work out some agenda that they have that that may not be good, and and the person in charge may not even realize it at the time. So God, would you protect them from bad advisors who want to steer them in the wrong direction? Help them to make choices that will honor you and your will. God, please guide them toward policies that protect all image bearers of God, born and unborn, help them to value the dignity of human life that you created in ways that maybe they don't right now. Help them to see more of you and to understand your truth and understand more about Jesus, Lord. Send people into their life to share truth with them. Lord, please give them excellent health. Bless their family. Help them to prosper, especially when they do things that honor you. And God, please show them where they are wrong. And please show me where I may be wrong or where Maybe both of us are wrong. Maybe my reaction is so extreme that I'm actually wrong as well. But God, please reveal to them where they do need to change. Help them to see people through your eyes. These are prayers of faith. Too often, our idea of change is I'm going to pick up the pieces myself, and I'm going to try to do something to make change happen. Maybe it's posting online, maybe it's protesting, maybe it's other things, and, and we certainly should take action in those ways, but there also has to be a role for prayer here where we say, I'm going to trust in God, and as much as I can do to change that person's opinion, perspective, whatever, I know God can do way more. Sometimes a good prayer is, Lord, change them or change me or change us both. Lord, you alone know if what I wanna see happen here is what you wanna see happen here. So instead of getting too bothered and upset about it and not trusting in you in this, I'm just gonna choose to trust in you and pray and ask God, would your will be done? Would you work in this situation? I'm gonna leave it in your hands and leave it up to you and not not let it cause me to worry or fret because I know you don't want me to do that. These are prayers of faith, prayers for everyone Prayers for our leaders, our authorities, or sometimes hard to like. It's nothing new. The early church struggled under incredible persecution. We may be headed there as a country in the future. I don't know. But if we do, it won't be anything new. It'll just be a return. This, this religious freedom that we have enjoyed in this country for a long time is, is not the norm. It is a blip in human history and the lack of oppression that we have experienced in this country is incredibly unique compared to the millennia. A couple of millennia ago in the 1st and 2nd century the Roman empire was persecuting Christians severely. And there was one Christian theologian who decided to write a very long letter to the Roman governors of the various provinces around him to try to defend Christianity and say, hey, we're not that bad. You don't need to be scared of us. The Roman officials thought that maybe because the Christians were not worshiping Caesar, that the Christians were going to eventually revolt against them, that maybe they were just building up their following until they could have a time when they could actually overthrow certain provincial governments that were installed by Rome. And so they didn't trust them. They didn't find them to be loyal. They were very concerned about this Christian movement that was growing so rapidly and so Tertullian. This Christian theologian wrote a letter called His Apology, to defend Christianity to the Roman leaders. And here is what he wrote. We pray for all the emperors, that God may grant them long life, a secure government, a prosperous family, vigorous troops, a faithful Senate, and obedient people that the whole world may be in peace and that God may grant both to Caesar and to every man the accomplishment of their just desires. What an awesome prayer and what an awesome testimony to be able to say, we're not trying to undermine you. We're not trying to hurt you. We're praying for you. We are asking our God that you don't believe in to help you and bless you. That's what Paul was talking about. That's what Tertullian wrote in his letter. I want you to notice that at the very end, he says, we are praying for the accomplishment of their just desires. Why? Because we're not praying for the accomplishment of their unjust desires. We don't have to pray that they would be wise in implementing their bad ideas, but we should pray that they have wisdom, wisdom from God to make the right choices, choices that may just surprise us. And we can pray this for our leaders and our authorities, that they would be effective at doing what is good and know when to avoid what is bad and know the difference. We can pray that God would bless them and make them prosperous, but also guide them to the truth. And don't forget about verses three and four of 1 Timothy two, Paul says, this is good and pleases God, our savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. So pray for their salvation. Pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them would reveal their sinfulness. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit would be sent to convict the world of sin. So pray, Holy Spirit, would you convict them of their sin? Show them their need for you. Bring people into their life that would share truth with them, would share the gospel with them. I am personally ashamed at how little I pray for some of these people that are in authority that I disagree with. I mean that. And I have to guess that if all of us were to, many of us, were to think through, when's the last time we spent some time praying for some of the people in charge that we don't care for? That's a hard question to answer. This is the challenge that Paul puts before us. Now, we may be tempted to think they're too far gone. Look at their life Look at this. I mean, they have chosen their path, and they're on their path, and I just don't like it, and I don't like them, and I don't like what they do, and they're too far gone, and no one is too far gone for Jesus. Paul was the chief of sinners, and yet God turned his life around. Some of the most amazing Christian leaders and pastors and thinkers have been people with horrible pasts who did horrible things just like Paul did, and yet God got a hold of their life. Some of the celebrities that you think are larger than life that you think, man, there's no way God would ever get a hold of them, he does. And it's amazing. You may be familiar with Norm MacDonald, the comedian who was often crass and and told some pretty raunchy jokes back in the day. Did you know that later in life he became a committed Christian? He passed away this week. He was a committed follower of Jesus, very bold in his faith towards the end of his life. What about Alice Cooper? the wild and crazy, irreverent, addicted rock star known for some pretty crazy antics and some pretty ungodly things. He became a committed Christian and he is now open about his faith, shares his testimony. You can find it online. You can go watch an hour long of him talking about Jesus and what a difference he made in his life. Alice Cooper. Last year, Matthew McConaughey was preaching in his church. He was pretty good. My point is, there are people who you would think are like, there's no way. But are you praying for them? Because there is a way. And just maybe some of those people that you think right now are beyond hope, or you're not even thinking that way. You're just thinking, I just hope that they lose all their authority, all their power, just get rid of them wherever they are, in my my school, at my work, in politics, whatever it is. What if we prayed for them? and pray that God would not only bless them and give them wisdom and discernment, but that he would also show them his truth. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Not only for us to do, but for us to say that we do. It's not too crazy to think that some of these larger than life characters could turn to Jesus. And maybe God is willing to influence them in that direction and he's waiting for us to ask. So let's ask. Right now, at the end of this message, let's take a few moments to pray for our leaders, to pray for our authorities. We're going to give you a few minutes to do that before we close in a final song. And before we do that, I do want to say, if there's anyone out there in this room or watch online who is hearing about this barrier that's broken down between God and us and what jesus did for us and thinking man i I don't really understand that i don't feel like i can just waltz right into god's office i don't feel like i can just go in there and have a conversation with him there is some separation between me and god our prayer team is going to be available at the front of the service up here in the front and would love to share with you what it means to have a relationship in jesus i'll be in the back in the lobby you can find pretty much anybody with a lanyard as long as it says first free church And ask them, hey, I want to know more about this this relationship with Jesus, how I can have that access with God, that relationship with God, and not have a barrier between us. We don't have to feel condemned. We don't have to feel guilty because Jesus has paid for it, and we can go right into the presence of God. So let's do it now, and let's do it on behalf of our leaders and authorities. Take a couple of minutes right now and pray for those people, would you?